millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can, the best way possible, while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Timothy Demieri, Tim, thanks for joining the show. You're welcome. welcome aboard. 
Thanks. Glad to be here. Tim, we've uh, we've met uh, about a year and a half ago for the first time, only briefly, uh, but you've been on my radar since, and I'm super appreciative of the opportunity to have a chat with you. Before we dive any deeper, um, I'd love to hear who you are, what do you do, and why do you do it? Sure. Um, so... Who I am could take a long time, but uh, <laughs> but we'll keep the brief version. Um, I'm originally French. I've been um, lived around the world quite a bit. Um, so I uh, grew up a bit in France, but you know lived in Asia, lived in the U.S. Actually studied in the U.S. Um, worked there for a few years, and then came to London, uh, where I've been for oh, about 11, 12 years now. Um, so this is actually a single country where I've lived the, mo- the longest, which is interesting. Um, and um, I now work for Palantir Technologies. Um, I work on mostly on the strategy side, but uh, Palantir is a very fluid place, so I do a little bit of everything. Um, why I do it, I think, you know, Palantir is a very clear mission, um, often misunderstood, as we all know, but, um, but that mission, at least to people working there, is, pre- is pretty clear in terms of helping the world and, and helping... Um, organization make better sense of that data um, and as an engineer by background um, I went to finance first um, both sort of investment banking hedge funds private equity and sort of always missed that technical aspect of it um, so going back on the tech side has been uh, has been very interesting to me and has been sort of from from an intellectual point of view um, a lot more f- fulfilling that than the past that uh, 12 15 years so Palantir has been in existence since 2004. It's 15, 16 years. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the colossus uh, tech giants uh, of, of our era, an important company. A lot of people have heard the name. They're not exactly sure what the company does. Um, there are some restrictions to what can be said, um, but from what you can speak about, what does the company do and uh, and what's your role in it? Sure. So the, the company is it's a software company. Um, so the, the software is... A, a essentially a big data platform um, and what we do is we take data sources from commercial organization government organization and we connect them all together and that brings an insight about the company's data it brings um, links that you can draw it brings efficiencies and so that's really the core of the platform especially on the commercial side and much more sort of on, on the government side um, all these organizations have pools of data from different data sets, different databases, different systems. And a lot of the time they sit in silos. And so if you take a big manufacturer, for example, they might have a set of data at a specific plant or a specific supply chain, and they may have a total separate data on customers or the end product. And being able to connect those two will give you insight about how to better manage either your customer or your supply chain. And so that's mainly what we do and then on the government side it's it's very similar work you know the the way we look at it is you know if the company was as you say was founded in 2004 so about three years after the 9-11 attacks um and the way that palantir had and the founders of palantir have looked at 9-11 attacks it was primarily a data failure it was a failure of all the different agencies being able to piece together what was happening and so if you think about it in that context that's exactly what Palantir does. It helps connect all those data points together. The uh, objective weight of certain pieces of data 
don't make sense when they're standing there on their own. They don't accumulate to a meaningful insight or an actionable insight. Yeah. But if you piece them together, it creates a blip on the radar that needs to be acted upon. Correct. It creates it creates a picture, and it creates a picture from which you can drive business outcomes. I think that's the best explanation of what Palante does I've had uh, ever, <laughs> including having seen a, a bunch of videos online to, uh, to be better prepared to this conversation. So excellent. Thank you. That's, uh, You're welcome. Framing it as a software company really, really helps. It's also a software company that's, you know, Peter Thiel is involved, um, the Paypal Mafia. These are the guys of the, the, the original gangsters of today's tech scene. Uh, quite inspiring in that regard. These are businesses that are very different than, than today's startups. These are profitable companies working in huge markets that have been able to evolve and transform to adapt into today's needs, the regulatory needs, but also the customer needs. Um, in that regards, they never try to be the Uber of something. No, and that's, and that's, a, that's a big distinction, um, is that we actually help industrial conglomerates. We help sort of what you would call old world companies uh, to be better prepared for today and the future. Um, so we don't, we don't qualify, like an Uber would qualify themselves as a disruptor. That's not what we're here. We're here to empower the companies uh, from you know, the factory worker all the way up to the CEO. It is all about how everybody in the company makes data-driven decisions. Data-driven is uh, so often seen on people's CVs these days because, yeah. like, you have to be data literate in order to to you know get ahead in today's world, which is fair enough. Speaking of CVs, we'll go to your origin story in a few seconds. But if I go into your profile now on LinkedIn and I'll see strategic development, I think personally, strate- strategy would be one of the most abused words in 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 the workforce today. Yeah. What does strategic development mean? And I'll tell you what I'm asking because strategy is sometimes some, something companies do you know, on their uh, biannual offsite. For two days, they strategize and then they forget about it. So what does the day-to-day of a strategic developer look like? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very general title for a reason. Um, and that it's it's a very broad role in terms of you know how do we go forward and, and what are the key things that will add value to the company. Um, so that's the way I kind of look at strategy is everybody almost in any company is a strategist, right? It's getting to your desk and saying, okay, well, what is the next little piece of work I can do that will maybe add a little bit of value and all those things together brings value to the entire company. So strategic development, in my view, is so general because it's actually pretty much what everybody does from the CEO who makes the big decisions um, for any company, not not just, and this is not specific to Palantir, it's just my view in general, um, from the CEO that takes the big M&A initiative or, you know, the next big thing to, you know, the security guard who makes a decision about opening the door to someone or welcoming someone. It, it's really, for me, strategy is like a, a word that actually defines pretty much every job, in my view. So on a day-to-day basis, what that means for me is looking for, um, looking for you know, the next potential client, the next potential investor, the next potential step we can take um, to move our journey forward. I want to go back to your origin story. So that's your day-to-day job with Palantir. But you didn't study strategic development and you didn't study investment banking. What did you study? 
I studied aeronautical engineering. <laughs> Tell me more. So I had, I mean, when I grew up, I had, I've always had a passion for, for space and I've always had a passion for airplanes and, and um, aeronautics in general. And when I studied in high school, I loved math and I loved physics and I loved computer science. And so when I went to study aeronautical engineering, for me, it was a passion more than like, you know, what's next in my life and where am I going to make money and what is good for the next 25 years? Because I just, who knows, right? I don't think anybody knows coming out of high school what they want to do. And so what I did is I followed passion. I had, you know, I, I loved it. I, I loved those three disciplines and that all brought it together for me. So that's the path I chose without sort of any more thinking than the four years ahead. When my friends went to university, I've, I've never completed university. I didn't even finish high school, but people around me, when they needed to study something, but didn't know what, they didn't go for the hardest thing imaginable. <laughs> they went and studied, you know, English literature or uh, the yeah, arts or, business. or interior <laughs> design, uh, which is, you know, less of a commitment. So how did you persevere in what I imagine are grueling studies without actually wanting to be an aeronautical engineer? You know, I guess I just, I loved what I did and I loved what I studied. And I think that was the key part of of those four years and and actually you know the move into investment banking was was just like it, it was even I, I wouldn't say a mistake but it was just a weird coincidence um and when i made that move it was uh, th there was a couple external factors um so i would have gone to work for um in aeronautical engineering i think for a couple of years but I studied, I graduated in 2004, so 2001 happened just before, um, and I studied in the U.S. And right after the 9-11 attacks, the Patriot Act in the U.S. was passed. And among many other things, one of the little things that the Patriot Act said was that no non-U.S. citizen couldn't work for any companies that had any defense contracts. Now, in aeronautics, that's every company has a defense contract, no matter what, right? From... Boeing to Lockheed to SpaceX, even though SpaceX is mostly commercial, you know, orbiters, orbiters are considered weapons and hence it's a defense company. And so even today, I cannot even go and serve coffee at SpaceX because I'm not a U.S. citizen. And you drink tea. And I drink tea. I do love coffee as well, <laughs> but this is too late for my coffee. Right? I've heard no coffee rule after after lunch. Oh, yeah, that's um, a, a good rule to speak to. I mean, I have like three before lunch, but. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I had, I had sort of a couple options after my studies is either I took a view that this was temporary and it would change, um, or I would go back to Europe and work in that field, which meant at the time, um, basically only Airbus, or I went, I would go into graduate school and do a master's and then maybe a PhD after that. And then in the middle of that, Sort of, I had a lot of people just study. If, um, not study, I had a lot of people that were interviewing for investment banks, uh, both on the trading side and on the corporate finance side. And so, um, I took a view that I would just go and interview and see what happens. What happened? I interviewed with one bank and I got one job, and I decided that I would go and try it out and see see what happened. And at the time, this was two thousand. I had the offer in 2003, so it was about like six months before graduation. And I had gotten into my master's 
um, degree at, at MIT as well, and I could defer for two years. So I decided to defer for two years and you know go experience the world and 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 learn another skill. And I did, and I never went back. How much of your aeronautical engineering knowledge do you use on your day-to-day work as an investment banker, as a financier, as a, as a strategic developer? Uh, very little. Um, of the actual knowledge, uh, very little, except for you know telling my friends how planes fly. Apart from that, um, it's mostly it's, it's mostly the, the problem solving skills. It's mostly how you think about complex. problems and complex systems of problems. It sounds to me like the biggest advantage of studying that if you're not building spaceships is the sense of capability that you can approach whatever problem with some confidence that you know how to dismantle it and, and come up with an idea of how to tackle it. It sounds to me like it makes you a very dangerous person in a pitch room with founders, entrepreneurs pitching you ideas. It's quite interesting because I think it gives you a foundation of what is possible um, and it definitely like I have definitely been in in involved in pitches for aeronautical engineer uh, engineering companies which is always super interesting it's always nice to go back to your roots but it also you know works with car companies or car design like this it, it's applicable to a range of fields um, and I think what's really interesting about being an engineer in finance is that a lot of the time, You know the startup pitching kind of assumes that you're just a finance guy and don't really know you you know head from your bottom and so it's kind of interesting to have that background and be able to say well hold on there because if you look at that technology how does that apply and how is that actually realistic and I think that that is a really nice advantage to have it's kind of a stealth engineer in the room it's always been I've had some some very interesting meetings that way I didn't mean to dwell on on, on that point but I found it fascinating that you started with you aeronautical engineering and then for yourself as an investment banker I'd love to hear more the reason you're here is not because you can build spaceships um, and it's not because you work for volunteer it's because you've seen I don't know how many startups in various stages invested in some skipped investment in others uh, advised and still advise to others and this is what I want to talk to you about today. sure um, do you remember the first company you invested in first company I invested in sort of on my own book was actually I started in the public markets really uh, on the investment side uh, from a professional point of view I invested later sort of on the personal capacity um, in a couple of startups but really my investment career started on the professional side and it started in um, sort of bigger companies I would say as sort of my own investment decision the first one I invested into was actually a Um, spirits company coming out of bankruptcy so that was my first sort of big um, investment of my own which was which was really interesting so nothing to in some ways like a restartup but very, an actual established company that was big that went belly up and that was just emerging from bankruptcy that was that was my first very first one how long ago was that uh, that was two that was probably five six years ago um, I think since then it's been bankrupt again is perfectly fine um, but I mean public market investments are, are very different you're not you're not there for the long term it's it's short-term investments um, and so you know picked it up at the bottom and, and exited pretty nicely and, and that was 
that was a great investment. I think we made three or four times our money in that in, in about 12 months. So wow. um, it's it's probably one of the most successful investments I've done um, as well. Um, to date, like I have a few sort of smaller bets on startups, So, but those are 10, 15 year views. 10, 15 years, this is a how long you give them before you expect to see a return? I would think so for most of them, yeah. Uh, for For truly sort of mature company I think unfortunately with these things there's like no real shortcut I mean you have the unicorns and you have all those that came out in sort of five six years and and I think to be able to call those um, takes takes a lot um, and I think it takes a lot of luck as well but you know it for a startup I would say five years is your best case ten years is probably is probably what what you would expect. 10 years is very, very far into the future. You know? yeah. It's hard to imagine what things will and will not happen 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. As someone who's coming from a risk-minimizing profession like aeronautical engineering, moving into a, a super um, risk-tolerant environment like VC, does that skill set help? Um, um, I think it does because it gives you... It's, it's essentially the same. So if you reverse that a little bit and you take the risk part out because risk is actually an opportunity and it just depends on how you view it and how you're able to sort of price that risk within your investment. So if you look at aeronautics, yes, you built something and you minimize risk, but what you're looking at is what can go wrong. And it's probably a thousand things, but you have to think about all those thousand things and how you minimize that. And investment, to some extent, is is very similar. It's you look at it. I never look at like, hey, what can go well, and how can I make ten times my money. I, can, I look at, okay, well, what can go wrong, and if it goes wrong, how do we respond, and how do I price that into how much I invest, when I invest, the valuation at which I invest, and so that is that is sort of the other way to look at it, in my view. It's it's a it's a it's a mirror image because in engineering you you give a solution to the thousand to the thousand things that can go wrong in investment you look into a company like how big can that get not yeah. in how many ways can that get messed up sure but I mean you look at Boeing and what's happening to Boeing these days and, and you know someone didn't think about that someone didn't think about that reaction and, and they took a lot of shortcuts and you know time will tell what actually happens although I think we have a pretty good idea what happens but I think it's it's risk tolerance into how do we account for all the solutions and how do we account for all the potential risks what's harder with startups is that there's potential risk that you don't you can't even imagine like what um i mean for for anything you know 10 year down the view 10 year down down the line is you can there are risks that you can potentially not even think about um so you know five years ago someone invested in uber and said great i'm going to be here for 10 years um, you know, maybe in five years, petrol cars are banned, and then what happens? You know, and so I think, then you're starting to see things like that with Uber. That's why they're looking at electric cars. That's why they're looking at, you know, flying cars and things like that, like self-driving cars and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think in startups, it's trying to define the risk that you can't imagine, which is the hardest part of it. And I think you have to price that risk in in terms of what kind of industry you're in. Um, what kind of products you have, you know, what is the political environment, how that will be accepted, and what can change from there. 
there's a the dynamic between startups and VCs, um, investors in general, is funny because one's pockets finance this this company's vision, so there's a dependency. The burden on the VC's shoulders is huge. If you want to get uh, the expected returns on your fund, you need to have one company out of 10 exit at five to 10 times uh, the price of the funds because the rest will either fail or with some breaking even. Yeah. So there's huge pressure on both ends. Young entrepreneurs trying to do things that haven't been done before and VCs who are carrying a shit ton of, of financial risk. It's not personal risk. And I'd love to learn more about that dynamic from your perspective. Um, but before doing that, I want to talk about a myth. Um, I don't know if it's a myth or a perception, but that VCs is, you know, they're, they're not really doing much. Um, I don't mean to be to be demeaning in any way, but they're not they're not in the trenches. They finance, they advise, they help companies focus, they facilitate connections, but they're not really getting dirty. Yeah. I think that's fair to some extent. I think I think you have a wide range of VCs out there. I think to some extent sort of generalizing the VC space into, you know, these finance guys that come in and give you a bunch of money and leave is it's somewhat unfair to some of those who are more hands-on. But in general, yes, you have to think about, you know, if you have a 100 million VC fund, you're probably taking, you know, half a million to million dollar bets. So you, you know, calculate how many portfolios you have so there's there's an imbalance between how many companies a VC manages and the fact that you know the startup founders are like that's their whole life and so I think that's where some of the the dynamic comes from is that no startup is a VC's entire life because it can't be because from the way the business works on their side it's just not possible and so that's where some of the misunderstanding comes from I think and you know, it, it, it's so much more. I think the startups really need to make. There's there's a lot of work in education to go into startup founders into finding the right money, not just finding money, but finding the right money for them. And that's that's really key to I think fundraising, which is gets lost to a lot of startups, and it's very hard to do because when you're in the trenches and you need to raise a million dollars, you're gonna try to get the first million you get because that could take six months to a year while you're not running your business. And so I think it's that those dynamic can be very conflictual, uh, which is not very conducive to, to building a business. What advice would you give entrepreneurs in their early stages um, when looking to raise investments in terms of getting the right money? It's difficult because every, every startup has a different, um, has a different situation, but um, against you know, most VCs, I would say, take VC money as late as possible. Um, I think you need, at the beginning at least, and this is, you know, sort of the couple startups that, that I've personally invested in, it's about finding the people that are, like, are passionate about what you're doing and are passionate about, you know, the mission that you're trying to accomplish and getting sort of more personal money in because that will give you sort of that solid investor base and that solid sort of following from day one and then VCs will be fundamentally misaligned with startups they'll be aligned in that they want the startups to make a return but they'll be looking after their interests 
as in individual investors or, or you know guys like family offices or things like that which are sort of less maybe a little bit less involved in the nitty-gritty but just believe in the passion will be 100% behind that founder and so that creates kind of an aura behind behind the startup which then enables further raising after that so family offices um, the benefit like you're saying is more alignment between between the fund and the company yeah I think as as philosophical alignment is as much as important as the actual money and also being very clear about what is your path so as a founder you need to be very clear with the investor like this is the path I want to go through and I've seen a couple of times where you know they kind of you have a discussion between founder and the VC and the VC starts saying well what if you you know what instead of um, building your product this way you build it that way and then you launch here you know in Europe instead of the US and you do this instead of that and I think that that is a bad sign that is a sign of a fundamental misalignment between what the founder believes is the right way to go and what the VC thinks is the right way to go so believe and thinks I think is where this all diverges if we, if we had a way to actually collate like sort of all like pre-seed and seed presentation And look at all those companies that have survived and what the plan was back then and what it actually ha- what actually happened I would bet good money that it diverges most of the time and that's perfectly fine what you invest in as an investor into a startup you invest into that founder making that idea his enti- his or her entire life that's what you want right we're coming into a clash because you want to have a horse in the race and that is all in and well equipped to win mm-hmm. and it's in your interest for that person uh, he or she to drive as hard as they can to achieve that goal who is then in charge of looking after that person's longevity well-being and, and how can you do that when you have an interest in, in that person's perseverance well I think you have to you know as an investor I think you have to keep um You have to bring a more personal side to it. You have to take interest into what that person likes, what that person does. So you know, my personal investments I've done, you know, I actually spend time with the founders. I you know, I look at you, I think one of them actually, you know, a few months ago and it was like, you know, I've been fundraising for a year and I haven't you know I haven't done anything else. And I'm like, have you gone out? Have you gone out with friends like have you met a have you met anybody like have you gone out on a date because it's so important to understand the mental space of your founder and understand that yes being 200% doesn't mean you're working on this 24 hours a day right like this is also a myth that needs to be debunked a founder being 200% into their startup doesn't mean this is all they do this is their entire life and nothing else is can be done right it just means that This is obviously their priority. It's their baby. You know they're going to drive it. But you also take interest into their personal side and understand that they need to go out. They need to have friends. They need to have family. They need to relax. They need to take a vacation. Like, it's okay for a founder to take a vacation. Or at least it should be okay. And the, the VCs and the investors need to understand how far that person can go or what they need to do in order to stay balanced, stay healthy, you know, have the right frame of mind because I think when you push people the way that VC investors sometimes push founders it actually is counterproductive to what they're trying to achieve 
as an investor or as a founder, if you want to understand the other side, you first have to understand yourself. That's number one. So my question to you is, how long do you spend with founders on average before deciding to invest with them? I would say the, the two current investments I have, I've actually, I think I've become friends with the founders before I invested. Um, which not to say that like you need to become friends with all your founders. I don't think, I don't think that's the case, but actually one was a friend, one became a friend, but I think to answer your question, quite a bit of time. Um, and not necessarily like, you know, you have to go hang out and have a drink or have dinner or whatever, but it's spending time on the phone. It's, it's actually asking them personal questions. It's actually asking them like where they're from, you know, like one of, one of the things that like, I'm amazed how few people ask that question from, from the investor side is just, how did you get here? How did you get that idea? There was a, one thing you said about getting to know the, like the origin story of where this founder is coming from. Why do they do what they do? Going back to my days in the army um, as a commander, you'd have all sorts of uh, soldiers coming in. It's a melting pot in the, in the most, in the truest sense of the, of the term. And if you really wanted to get to know one of your soldiers, which you had to because, you know, it's a matter of life and death. Yeah. Um, and you have to establish trust in the most deepest, intimate levels of it. The best way to go about it was not a week-long exercise, was not highly pressurized environment, was not sleep deprivation or food deprivation, and then seeing what this person is made of. It was having tea or coffee with his family. Yeah. And spending 30 minutes in the living room with that person's family told me more about them than a boot camp would. Yeah. I, I knew not only how they behave in a certain situation, I also knew why. And it gets as intimate as opening the fridge. Mm. You know? If I'd open the fridge and I'd see someone is, he likes a particular a, a peanut butter and we're going down to the field for a week-long exercise and I'm like, hey, Jimmy... And I pass over his favorite type of peanut butter. Like, how did you know? And, yeah. You know, it's that type of intimacy that builds those relationships. Yeah, I think it's details. And I think it's, I think, you know, the, the investor community could be served well in terms of asking founders very simple questions. It doesn't have to be super complicated. It doesn't have to be like, how do you think, how big do you think the market is? Or how, like, who knows? But you know what? Tell me one defining moment in your life. So one defining event. It can be anything. It can be a graduation. It can be, you know the birth of a brother or sister. It could be the death of a family member. It could be, you know, something they, they, they went through. It could be a test they had to go through, like anything. But tell me one defining moment that shaped you. That's such an intense question. How about you? What's the one defining moment? Um, I mean, I think it's, it, it, there's, there was, there's always a few, um, but I think for me, you know, one defining moment was um, when I was 13, my, my parents essentially, my dad was sent to, um, to Seoul to, for, for work. And so that was a very different moment in that I was 13 and all of a sudden my life was completely uprooted within a few months from, um, you know, being in Paris, speaking French, going to French school and having my friends to going to South Korea in the late 90s going to international school, all of a sudden studying everything in English and having to make a completely new life. And I think that was very defining in terms of 
that built my ability to adapt to situation that built my ability to um, sort of accept the fact that stuff will be thrown at me but that no matter what with the right people around with the right relationship and with the right support system you can throw all you want at me we'll make it through and I think that was very defining for me and for my personality. I'm interested in that, particularly because of your position, a, a phone position as an investor, because you often create um, or, or see folks when they are in new and uncomfortable situations. You give them the money you, uh, based on certain goals and KPIs they've committed to, and now they need to deliver. So, do you feel responsible when 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 shit hit the fan when companies fail and on the vice versa what's the gratification like when you feel like you've done well by investing and enabling the company I mean when companies fail it just depends like you it just depends how it fails I think um, depends how it fails yeah I think I think um, you know I've had some shockers uh, as I think a lot of investors have whether they They admit it or not shockers in what way um, we all have we all do bad investments we all do and they fail for different reasons I think where where failure becomes a problem is when the failure comes from um, something that should have been or could have been avoided um, so I'll give you an example for example like you know I started up um, well I was part of a hedge fund startup um, a while ago and I You know we're doing pretty well and then you know we basically failed because a brexit vote happened and we had a u.s investor that got spooked that was most of the fund and we couldn't have seen that coming now did we build it in a way that was sustainable for the future probably not did we make errors along the way yes was there a big exogenous factor that led to that failure absolutely do i feel bad about it no because we couldn't have predicted that We could have done things better but we couldn't have predicted that and more importantly the response after that event was the right response so when I looked at you know founders can miss KPIs that's absolutely fine like in my view a KPI is is an aspiration not a hard goal you should have lofty expectations and aspirations if you don't meet them you In my view that's okay as long as you're taking the right step and we're going into the right directions if something fails because you repeatedly do the same thing wrong that's when I have an issue with it so it, it's just it's very different on I think how it fails makes makes all the difference and how you respond to that miss or that failure is 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 also paramount I think to how you then as an investor respond to that in balance. between a VC and a startup is at its most extreme when things go bad mm-hmm. right when things go well then it was my advice that they gave them the idea to do this feature that everyone's happy no one would fight over the credit because everyone's buying private islands fair enough but when things don't go as well <coughs> first there's, there's failing the right way fair enough in What advice would you give people who are realizing actually this isn't turning out the way I thought it would so how do you bow out elegantly from that type of situation 
I think you need to be transparent with your investors and you be transparent and truthful to yourself. I think that's the most, that's, that's one of the most important thing. If you have an event, if something happens and you, you know, you miss a, a KPI, you, you miss sort of a target. I think you have to be very transparent about why that happened and the steps you're going to take to remedy that. And I think that transparency is, I think, how you build that trust with your VC. So, you know, if I have if I have a founder that sort of misses a target and says to me, well, we know we're just going to keep going because we're doing it right, you know, I'm going to assess that and say, are we really doing it right? Is that really the way we want to do it? Is that really the trajectory we need to be on? Is that really the strategy we need to go through? If I have a founder that says, look, we missed it, but, you know, I've looked at this and here's how we're going to reposition it or here's how we're going to grow or here are all the factors that have led to that miss. We can remedy this one, this one, this one, but not that one because that one is external, has nothing to do with us. Then that's much more appropriate response. How would you deal with a founder that says, listen, this had failed, this initiative, whatever. And to be honest, I don't know why. I don't have the bandwidth to investigate it further. I would probably buy out of that one. Why? Because I think self-analysis and doing a post-mortem, what goes wrong, is one of the most important ways to learn about what happened. And if you don't learn about the past then there's no way you're going to make it better in the future. You have to learn from mistakes. Mistakes are okay. They are absolutely okay, and they happen. But doing the analysis and taking the time to understand why they happened is, for me, as important as trying to solve it. What are some ways for, for people in the innovation ecosystem to be self-critical and reflective and, and learn? I think it just, it's, it's, it's a lot of self-analysis, and it's a lot of reflecting on your day-to-day actions. It's a, I think, in my view, you know, I, I backed a company when the founder was 18. doesn't matter. Age is not a thing. It's about how you reflect and how you think about your journey. So, again, it's difficult. Every, every founder is different and, 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 and every sort of situation is different. The um, one advice I would give in that regard is have accountability partners people who would tell you the truth about where you are and what you do um, without being afraid of the repercussions. And uh, if you can form this type of relationship with your VC, then amazing. Yeah, and I think, I think it comes back to, like your, to our point earlier about your early stage investors being people who believe in your mission, who have backed you very early on, who are usually individuals or families or people who believe in your mission. Because I think those people can be the best sounding board for that. Sometimes a VC relationship is difficult and it's hard for a founder to open up really truly to a VC about their thought process or confine in them or um, really have sort of that deep reflection about where things are. What do you think VCs should do better in order to foster a more trusting relationship with their founders? So it's, it's, it's really tough and it's going to be controversial because this is the whole point of a VC, but take the money out of the equation forget that like I've seen way too many VCs going like well we've invested two million dollars in you and now what do we have it's not a productive way to actually start a conversation or start or putting a founder at ease it's it's more of listen yes I've invested money in you let's let's put it here for now now talk to me like I don't have any money in your company and tell me what happened 
And I think that's very important. If you take the money out for, for just a little bit, then I think founders would be more comfortable into opening up into their self-reflection and their self-analysis. And I think it's tough for VCs because money is their game. That is their business model. You can't forget about money. Yeah, and they have 10 or 20 other companies in their portfolio who are going through hard times themselves. So yeah. whatever they're going, it's mayhem. So many companies. Yeah, and I think, and I think you know, you, unfortunately that model has, um, and we could go on for hours probably about the VC world anyway in terms of how much money is in that world and, and people chasing deals and people chasing bad deals and you know a hundred billion vision fund with 500 people like it doesn't work that model doesn't work so for founders i think vc money can be good it can definitely open doors it can definitely help but you have to find the right vc and you have to find the guys that are suitable for you and i think as a general rule you know smaller funds more established funds but smaller um that's sort of don't have that idea of raising billions and billions and billions because that that never that business model doesn't work um and that have more concentrated bets can actually be much better for founders moving from success to success one big logo to the other can you inject some truth into your personal journey and the ups and downs of it and maybe share a moment in which actually didn't go according to plan uh, yeah i mean um you know i you know had made a job and I was made redundant from a bunch of them and and you know that there's been a couple of low points definitely in my career and I think you look at something like LinkedIn and, and you just you know you never know how it ends you just know that like you were there and things happen but you don't know how it ends and so my first job as an investment banker was fine and I left and I went to a hedge fund and I missed time to market remarkably um, because I signed with a hedge fund in July of 2008 and my start date was a week after Lehman collapsed. Wow. And I stayed there until it closed down and we were made redundant sort of five months later and that was spectacularly bad timing. It was a failure on the fun part, it was exogenous, but it was a failure on my part probably in terms of you know, being too green to kind of analyze the situation and, and really I jumped into something I didn't really understand. Because by the time I signed, it was 2008, like we knew the financial crisis was coming along. You know, I was at a bank that had 35 billion worth of losses in hedge funds and, and other investments in real estate. We knew it was something bad. At that time, was switching job to go to a hedge fund really the best thing and going to a market job? Probably not. I reflect back on it. It probably wasn't the right, the right choice at the time. And it was spectacularly bad. And I've had to explain it through more interviews that I can count and through more meetings that I can imagine because people look at it and be like, well, you were in a place for five months. What happened there? You just have to explain it over and over and over again. And it was, and it will always be something that sort of follows me. So, you know, it was particularly bad. You know, I've had others where, you know, I probably could have done better. I just wasn't interested. It wasn't the right job for me. And I just kind of stayed and probably wasted a bit of time and at the end it was made redundant and it happens but it the more important is what do you do about it i think you have to be brutally honest about it um i think um i always come from a more brutally honest than spinning a story i'm not a marketer i'm probably the worst marketer of myself anyway and i've never tried to explain it i've never tried to spin a story around it i've never tried to like make my cv look a little bit better and stretch dates or any of that 
where you know like you have three months of redundancy so you like you take it instead of like being five months you make it eight so it's better like no like I think brutal honesty and brutal transparency for me are the best tools I've ever had after that someone who wants a story or someone who wants me to spin the story to sell them on me essentially is the wrong person for me to work for is, is the wrong person for me to be associated with is this the same currency you'd appreciate in the founders yeah absolutely and I think I think um, if founders and investors can find at least again this is a personal preference I think you have um, you have investors who have investors themselves who need to spin that story so they need the founders to spin the story so they can spin the story and so on and so forth and you have layers of that but for me personally I would rather have brutal honesty and going sort of circling back to the engineering background is I cannot diagnose a problem and I cannot solve a complex problem if I don't have the facts the real facts don't want to spin that story I want the real facts what would be a good way to reach out to you and what types of things would you be interested in able to help I mean LinkedIn is the best way to do it um, and I'm always happy to chat uh, about ideas I'm always happy to sort of you know think about you investors um, what I think you know type of investors that that a founder would need to do is just be a sounding board um, I've talked to many many startups I've only invested in about two so I'm not a huge source of capital <laughs> but I'm always happy to introduce people and I'm always happy to bounce ideas team thank you very very much for your time today pleasure you're welcome thank you for having me A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.